You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Mike Green, I'm here in Marin County, really excited to continue my interview series. This time I get to sit down with my friend Jim Chanos. Jim, it's wonderful to welcome you to Real Vision. I'm glad to be here, my friend. So you're in Miami right now. You've been sheltering from the COVID storm. And one of the reasons that you and I know each other is that you annually have hosted an event down in Miami called Bears in Hibernation. That must have been a challenging uh, uh, experience for the past couple of years. Certainly, I know this year it, it was rescheduled and, and canceled due to the coronavirus dynamics. But you are extraordinarily well known for your stewardship of a firm named Kinecos and your ability to be short throughout the longest bull market in history, effectively. <laughs> Um, everybody wants to know the secret to how you've done that. But from my experience, what you have done probably better than anyone else in the bear community is created a community of individuals who value stock selection, value fundamental research and understanding of companies. And my experiences at bears, bears and hibernation have always been extraordinary. Just really, really bright people. I've attended, Josh Wolf has attended, um, in, you know, incredibly thoughtful people that, really understand the individual companies. And yet we're kind of in this environment where you have described it as the golden age of fraud, where nobody seems to care, even though more information is available than ever before. Can you tell me a little bit about what that means to you when you talk about the golden age of fraud and, and how that affects the way that you approach the markets these days? So, um, yeah, what a quaint notion, right? Talking about fundamentals and and, and doing deep dives on companies. It's It's a quaint notion. One day it might come back uh, into vogue, but uh, that doesn't seem to be the case uh, uh, these days. Um, well, just to give you a, a good example, last uh, last year's event, um, which we we moved uh, we moved from Miami up to uh, to Long Island, um, there was a spirited discussion um, about a company called Wirecard, and Wirecard, as we know, nine months later, basically completely blew up. Um, but at the time, the stock was trading in the DAX 30, was trading uh, well over 100 euros per share, despite allegations by the Financial Times and short sellers um, in February of last year that were quite credible, um, followed up by a document dump by the FT, Dan McCrum, uh, in October, I believe, uh, or September of, uh, of 19. And here you had a situation where... Um, the evidence of fraud was piling up in plain sight. Um, and, and all you had to do was a little bit of digging uh, based on publicly available reports um, and documents to realize that something was very, very wrong there, that the company was not what it appeared to be. And yet, and yet, the stock seesawed from basically 80 to 120 euros from the fall into June, when the company finally had to admit itself that it was making up the numbers and there was a couple billion euros missing from the company accounts. 
And then the stock went from 100 to, to basically three in a handful of days. Um, but any credible investor or anyone willing to do any kind of work would have seen immediately that there was a big problem here. Uh, the, the chairman of the board, the supervisory board, resigned in January. Most amazingly, the company uh, hired an independent auditor, separate from the regular auditor, to investigate the journalist's and short sellers' claim. And in April, that auditor came back and said to the public the company wouldn't cooperate with their investigation. So there, right then and there, you knew you had the smoking gun, as we like to say uh, in our community, and still the stock did not go down. And so it, it, I sort of, you know, to me, that was the sign that, that uh, whatever you want to put to market forces, the central bank's fingers on the scale, to use our friend Jim Grant's term, or whatever, that until you're actually confronted with the crime being admitted by the criminal, um, it's business as usual on Wall Street and, and in the other financial markets. It's quite something. And, and you know, we had, a, we had a wave of fraud right after the dot-com era. Um, and, uh, but I think this one is, is going to put that one to shame. When you think about that type of dynamic, like the wire card component, to me, that always speaks to something I'm... I always share with people, which is that it's not opinions that make markets or it's not the research that people do that makes markets. It's when a transaction actually occurs, when somebody is forced to decide, you know what, I'm going to exit my position in Wirecard because the allegations of fraud have suddenly become very painfully apparent and I, painfully apparent, and I can't run the risk that it shows up on my holdings, right? So that could be a fundamental manager that is supported up to that point and there's a tipping point that that occurs. One of the things that strikes me in this environment is that many times the holders, you mentioned the, the inclusion in the DAX index, in many situations, the holders are doing no research whatsoever because they are passive indices. They've, they've shown up in that way. When you think about something like Wirecard, how, how does that thought process influence what you think is going on? So. Uh, a couple thoughts on that. Um, you know, ideally, uh, in in our business, you want to be across from the table from someone who is doing no work um, or doing poor work. Um, and so, when when we've had this wave of passivity in the equity markets, generally, um, you know that that if if a, a stock is in a certain ETF or in a certain index, it's going to be bought and sold with the the vagaries of the market and flows into that factor-based algorithm, whatever whatever the case might be. And uh, you, know, you had to kind of adjust for that. You had to, to adjust the way you looked at companies and understand that. I think what is even, however, crazier um, is the fact that uh, we've layered onto that now um, something that we hadn't seen for the first 10 years of this bull market, which we've now layered on starting in the fall of last year um, with the advent of, of zero commissions and, and the explosion in activity online and Robinhood and others, we've uh, added to that kind of uh, interesting mix uh, the retail investor, who not only is doing no work, but is doing you know bad work or no and and uh, or following just following trend following things, speculating massively in options, and 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 really is is in the market in a way in which they haven't been since 1999 or, 19, or 2000. So you've got both of those to consider now if you're a skeptic like me as to just how 
how much these stocks can be held up. So in the case of Wirecard, to use your example, um, you have the, the index funds uh, that owned it, the DAX, and then it was one of the few large cap technology stocks in Europe. So there were a number of ETFs and factor-based um, algorithmic funds that owned it because it was a tech stock uh, denominated in euros, and fine. But then on top of that, you just had massive speculation by retail investors in, in the shares and the options who were basically betting uh, that the short sellers were wrong. That was their case, that in fact, this company was just fine. And all of this stuff that the FT had published, internal documents, all the rest of it, um, as I said, numerous smoking guns, was just uh, an opportunity for, uh, for long investors to, to get leveraged um, because these people had no idea what they're talking about. And so you couple both of those, Mike, and it's about as treacherous an environment, you know, near term for fundamental short sellers, you can imagine. So I, I think that's right. And I would, I'd, I'd add another layer to that from my perspective, which is we now inhabit a world in which everybody is perceived as being an expert. So your opinion after 30 years in the market, has, I don't want to, to you by saying it's a little bit more than that, I know, but um, it, you know the, uh, the, the underlying dynamic that um, prices going up says you're wrong because your opinion carries no more weight than the guy on the R Wall Street bet board um, similar to the 99 dynamic on Yahoo message boards. I know yeah. you sent me a really interesting presentation on, on uh, the TAM phenomenon that I want to go into. You drew the analogy of the Yahoo message boards from 99 to the R Wall Street bets today. Very much in that environment, you were perceived as fund managers or skeptics had no idea what they were talking about. Right? People have heard my story of being called the dumbest man alive in February of 2000. For not understanding, you know the the uh, inevitability of the new economy soaring while the old economy crashed, right? All right. You, you know you have those same dynamics, but ultimately we have an additional layer to it today, which is if the price is going up, then the short sellers must be wrong. It goes back even further. I mean, you and I remember two thousand February two thousand uh, very well, but I mean, if you go back to to uh, Adam Smith, George Goodman's uh, seminal book, The Money Game from 1969, 68, uh, the go-go market of the 60s, and, and the old timers lamented that they, you, know, you had to have a kid running your portfolio because only the kids understood that you could buy the electronic stocks and the bowling center stocks and the uh, conglomerates at any price, whereas the old graybeards were looking at things like dividend yield, cash flows, uh, things like that. And so, so we see this over and over and over again in, in market cycles where those with the least experience uh, because of recency um, have the best experience, right? They, have, they, they, only know, uh, they only know an up market and they only know that uh, on top of an up market, you can leverage returns in an up market um, by, uh, by using uh, margin or options. And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, and, and look, your scorecard, you are what your score says you are. Uh, I'm, I'm realist enough to know that. But I also know that, that what prices tell us is your level of risk. So that if you are wrong, you know, what is your, what is your margin of safety, to use an old term? And, and we're at prices now where uh, the crowd that is betting on margin and betting uh, through options, uh, weekly options, uh, had better be right. Because anything that, that corrects and reverts to the mean or to real valuation metrics 
um, is going to destroy a whole another generation of investors. You mentioned that destroying a new gen- a, 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 another generation of investors. I, I generally tend to agree with that. I actually just got off of a call uh, with an individual who has completed a study of Robinhood investor portfolios. And the conclusion is that 98% of option-related trades, despite the zero commission at Robinhood, are losing money. 98% are losing money. So, you know, one of the positive conclusions from that that you can draw is, is that they will eventually run out of energy, right? I mean, you can't right. you can't continue to lose on that. But that is one of the challenges. People, you know, this is obviously well documented. One of the challenges of being a professional money manager is, is that your track record is out there for everyone to see. You can't conveniently forget the names that didn't work, right? Or the <laughs> trades that didn't work in your favor. Sadly, no. It's a little bit easier to do when you're, you know, not really auditing your performance. You, you know, you basically focus on the wins, not the losses, et cetera. It feels like there's a there's certainly an element of that. And it's beginning to creep in. If you if you you know search the Wall Street bets uh uh, message boards, you're starting to find the messages similar to what you saw in Bitcoin in 2018. You know, I've lost everything. I can't pay my rent, you know, et cetera. It's really quite tragic. And, you know, this individual was describing what's happening in Robinhood as evil. Um, I, I don't know that I would describe it in quite that stark of a term, but the implications of it, I think, are ultimately going to be very similar to what we experienced in 2000, which is a general loss of interest, enthusiasm, et cetera, for any form of active investing. It, it, it strikes me as quite concerning. It is, and, and, and we can even go beyond that um, in that uh, you really are, are also seeing, because of now the advent of equity issuance again, um, and, and some of the vehicles that, that we're probably going to talk about, um, is that you're also seeing, uh, again, a transfer of wealth from people who probably can least afford it or don't understand what they're doing to uh, corporate insiders and promoters. And this was one of the big lessons of 99, 2000. And I think that that it's also one of the reasons why the backlash to fraud is always so great. And so I teach a course, as you know, in the history of financial market yeah. fraud. And the fraud cycle always follows the financial cycle and business cycle, but with a lag. And the longer the bull market and expansion goes on, the more people begin to drop you know, their sense of disbelief and, and begin to believe things that are too good to be true. But the corollary to that is, is that the, the uh, greatest defense attorney and the harshest prosecutor for a company is its stock price. Because as long as stock prices are going up, no one really cares that the company's massaging its numbers or playing games with pro forma or, uh, or, or outright fraud. But the minute people start losing money in a, in, a, in a big way, they begin to basically say, well, it wasn't my insane levels of leverage or didn't understand what I was doing when I bought Enron. It's, it's actually, you know, management are crooks and they stole from me and you better do something about this. And so that is still ahead of us in, in, uh, uh, in this cycle. But uh, my point, uh, I guess, is, is that um, people are going to do crazy things. They don't understand that, that what they're doing is basically like a casino and that even if they're not paying commissions, they need to understand things like bid ask spreads and, uh, and that, and of course they're going to trade themselves into oblivion. You and I both know that. No, it, it's, uh, that, that is one of the very clear challenges. 
you know, that gives us actually a really good opportunity to cycle back for a second because I, I know you so well and I know you're so well known in most venues that I don't even think about introducing you and giving your background. But you brought up this idea of being skeptical and being, um, uh, you know, thoughtful and understanding all of these frameworks. Your career began, give or take a decade or, co a decade or so before mine. You started as an analyst in the 1980s, if I remember correctly. And your rise to fame was on the back of a call on a company, Baldwin United. You were an analyst who basically yeah. came out with the sole sell recommendation Maybe you can actually just give us a little bit of that background and then let's talk about the starting of Kinecos because it fits with the narrative that I kind of want to lay out here. Yeah. So um, I started out as an analyst uh, in investment banking, but but I was a stock market junkie. Um, I traded options when I was in college and my dad had taught me about the stock market in the 60s. So I, I always was fascinated with it. And every every hour at lunch, I'd, I'd go down the hall at Blake Eastman Payne Weber and spend some time with the uh, the manager of the of the brokerage operation uh, and we'd talk stocks. And this was in uh, in 1980, and uh, a, a year or so later, he he said, you know, hey, by the way, I closed the door. Um, my partner and I in New York are going to uh, are actually going to start our own retail brokerage firm. Would you want to join us as an analyst? And I loved it because uh, you know doing deal books all day long. Um, for the investment banking side of the business was just not my idea of, of a great time. Um, so I joined him in Chicago. There's a little firm called Guilford Securities. And the first company I was asked to take a look at was this financial conglomerate called Baldwin United, the old Baldwin Piano Company. Mm -hmm. And uh, the CEO, Morley Thompson, had transformed it aggressively into a financial services company. And again, shades of shades of uh, 20 years later, uh, Fortune hailed it as one of America's most innovative companies. And um, it was uh, beloved by all the analysts and had a track record of fantastic earnings growth, all on the back of selling annuities. And uh, uh, they bought the s and Green Stamp Company, for example. None of your viewers are going to know what green stamps are. <laughs> but I know you do. I, I know what they are, but yes, yeah, yeah. it was the first. It, it was it was like the points programs of its day. Anyway, yes. um, and so um, they were uh, they bid for MGIC, big mortgage insurer in Milwaukee, and there was a huge spread in the arbitrage between the takeover bid and 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 the uh, price of the stock. And I was asked to look at it because we had clients that owned MGIC. And Baldwin was doing the highly unorthodox thing of, of, of using insurance company proceeds to make deals. And this was kind of a secret sauce. And uh, as I started looking at it, I just I read the 10K three times one weekend and just could not understand what they were telling me and how they made their money because they were front-ending the annuity profits. They were basically, again, shadows of foreshadowing Enron. They were allowed in the accounting conventions when they sold an annuity to uh, assume the uh, duration of the annuity and a spread and take the entire amount of income uh, immediately, present value. And so, of course, they were selling annuities as fast as they could, even though they couldn't really make in as much as they were paying out on the annuities, as much as 14% back then. So the more I got into it, the more just, just I started asking questions. I didn't know how to follow an insurance company, have the statutory in, um, financial statements that look like phone books. 
that listed every security and every line of insurance and sort of had to become self-educated on that. And I was at my office one night and uh, it was about 5, 36 o'clock and uh, my, my line rang, I picked it up and there was a voice on, on the line that said, uh, are you the analyst that's asking questions about Baldwin United? And I said, yeah, who is this? And uh, the voice on the other end said, it's not important who this is. Um, do you know that there are publicly available files in the state of Arkansas in the insurance department? No, I didn't know that. Who is this? You should get a copy of those files. I think you'll find them interesting. Click. So it's like, wow, this is like eight years after Watergate, and I just got a deep throat phone call. <laughs> so uh, I went into my boss's office the next morning to tell him about this phone call. And of course, he immediately said, you know, were you drinking? And I, I assured him. I think maybe you know maybe we should just hire an, an attorney in Little Rock and just go get the files and see what's in them. So we did that, and uh, a few days later we got a FedEx of just all these documents. And sure enough, the insurance regulators in Arkansas, where Baldwin had most of its insurance subsidiaries, had realized belatedly that they had basically been hoodwinked by the company and then let this guy do too much with the insurance proceeds, and were screaming for more capital. We're going to have a special examination. They had hired a former New York State Insurance Department um, superintendent, Richard Stewart, to go look at the company. And basically, you read these documents and you realize that the company was on fire. I mean, literally, that the, the insurance companies were insolvent. And uh, so we put out a research report a few weeks later documenting our findings, the fact that the company was aggressively accounting for the annuities, that there were regulatory concerns, blah, 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 blah. And I, I put out a sell saying, sell the stock at 24 and enterprising investors could consider a short sale. Well, the stock proceeded to double over the, the next sort of three months. Um, I put the report out on August 17th, 1982. And if you know your market history, you will know that that was the absolute bottom of the, of the 16 year bear market um, from 66 to 82. So it tells you something about my timing. Um, in the interim, um, in October, the Wall Street Journal got a copy of my report and asked about the regulatory reference, and I, I pointed them to the Arkansas documents. Uh, a couple days later, the journal re reports that our state of Arkansas uh, highly concerned of Baldwin United Insurance Unit demanding more capital, special investigation. Meanwhile, Wall Street was selling these annuities. Merrill Lynch was selling just boatloads of them. Yep. Um, and uh, I said, oh, there, you know, I walked in the office that day. I think the stock had closed at 33 the night before and like, you know, cha-ching, you know, we, we, it's over, you know, here it is. Wall Street Journal, page three, uh, the insurance companies may be insolvent, blah, blah, blah. The stock was up $3 that day. And it was, it was, a, it was an introduction to a young analyst that even if you have smoking guns, uh, a la Wirecard, the market can make you look wrong for a long time or, 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 Quite unprofitably, so the stock was going to put on another twenty dollars between uh, between then and the first week of December. And then Forbes came out and uh, published some further really damning stuff, and the stock finally broke. Um, the state of Arkansas moved in on Christmas Eve of '82 and seized the insurance companies as it had threatened to do, and Baldwin became the largest uh, bankruptcy in U.S. corporate history at that point. A couple months later, and yet, and yet, there it was all in public, um, published in the Wall Street Journal, documents available for anyone to see, 
Um, and, uh, and the stock basically continued to trade like it was a world beater for better part of six months. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, just very quickly, when you think about that Baldwin United dynamic, I mean, there's a couple of things that you hit on there that I think tend to be fairly common, and this applies to Wirecard as well. You know, you often have situations where companies have effectively an embedded finance unit, right? Where pianos were one of the products that would be a large purchase by a household, and so they needed a captive finance department to initially finance the purchasing of pianos. That then grew to dominate the underlying business and was used, as you're saying, to create a financial services conglomerate effectively with the, the that type of finance organization. We saw something very similar with GE. Yep. Enron had characteristics around that, et cetera. When you think about that tension, right, between you make the articulation and you identify the clear fraud and the market signal, how do you think about stop losses? How do you think about acknowledging the risk that you could be wrong in your analysis? Even if it's that clear, you had to have been, your boss had to at some point be coming into your office and saying, hey, Jim, I know that you did the work on this and I've seen the documents myself, but is it possible that you missed something, right? How do you think about that dynamic? Well, in that case, I had a boss who ran cover for me because the New York partner wanted to fire my rear end um, uh, when the stock, uh, you know, hit 50. Um, and cause we, we did have hedge funds. We had New York hedge funds, well-known people, uh, who were short the stock and, uh, on our recommendation were getting killed. And so, um, my head was going to be on a platter and, and, and to ever, his ever credit, um, my, my boss in Chicago, uh, said, no, I've seen the work. I've seen the documents, you know, the kid is right. Um, now when you're running money on your own, you don't, have anybody that other than your clients and your track record and your results. And so there it's a different, different animal. Um, and so there are really two ways to handle risk on the short side in an equity portfolio. Um, one is, uh, stop losses and the other is percent of capital allocation or some combination of the two. We've always used the latter. Um, individual ideas are so volatile that almost any stop you might set to take your out of a position is going to get hit. Certainly, I think almost any of our greatest hits, like Baldwin or Enron, or um, would uh, would have probably stopped us out at some point. Um, and for me, anyway, it's very hard to re-enter. Um, you know, when you've been stopped out. Now, what we found to be better is a is a percent of capital. We don't let any one position ever get to be above five percent. But practically. You know, three and four percent is a big position for us in a diversified portfolio. And so in, in a case of, 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 of a, a company that we love or we think we're right, but it goes against us, we'll have to trim the position and to keep it into our risk parameters. Um, but you have to understand that if that if you have to trim it on the way up, but it's the same terrible idea, um, you have to be willing to add, you know, as it's working. So the, the, the big example I can give you on that in our portfolio recently was a, a, a little company called Valiant, 
And I think you remember, I I, I gave uh, I gave Valiant as one of my ideas at our Bears conference. Uh, I, I do. In February of 14. And uh, um, it was $130 at that point. Um, and uh, and was, uh, was on its way to 260 a year later. And uh, we were, had to cover stock at 180 and 200 and I think 210. Um, basically, the position got too big. But... Uh, you know, we, we added to it on the way back down um, when finally what we thought would happen happened and uh, ended up covering position between 10 and 15. Um, and so, yeah, you can be wrong. I would have hated to be completely stopped out of Valiant, um, given the work we had done and how well we had documented it. Um, and, and just, you know, what a complete variant view that was with the rest of the hedge fund community. Um, it's it really, uh, is, was one for the ages. I, I think, uh, I, I do say, and I do believe, I think Valiant is the largest single stock loss in hedge fund history at the wow. peak. It had, it had about a $90 billion market cap. Um, and I, it, hedge funds owned about half of the capitalization. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the challenges, right? When you have a management team like you had with Valiant that is, let's, put it politely and say that there's a little bit of wink, wink, nod, nod, chumminess uh, with an investor community. Hedge funds are often looking for an element of edge and that tightness can encourage people to think that they have information that others may not, right? right. Um, yeah. That was certainly my perception on what was playing out in Valiant and the enthusiasm for it in the, in the hedge fund space. When you, so you went from Baldwin United and you continued to be an analyst for a couple of years. And then you launched Kinecos and you did something that was different than anyone else had ever done on the short selling side. And I think this actually speaks to one of the phenomenon that I often talk about in my interviews with people is, is it's a combination of the right place at the right time with the right innovations, right? So a long short fund, those had been in existence since the 1940s, right? Right. A dedicated short seller fund, particularly in the 1980s, I think was really challenging. And you took advantage of an insight that I think very few people appreciated at that point in time, which is, is as I understand what Kinecos did, you X'd out your short position by buying S&P futures. You effectively gave a market neutral without having to focus on, on picking long stocks. Is that a fair analysis? <laughs> it's almost fair and the timing's a little off. So we, okay. didn't, get, we didn't get that smart until the, the mid, mid 90s. Okay. Uh, so, so we had the short only business uh, from '85 on, and and um, caught a, caught you know a, a great wave of performance from '85 to '90 uh, uh, on the back of Drexel Burnham Lambert commercial real estate. Um, maybe more on that later, and yep. uh, a variety of, of of just you know uh, interesting ideas, idiosyncratic ideas. The roof caved in when the market took off in '91 from 95 and there was no place to hide on the short side and everything went up. Uh, I think the Russell might've been up 80 or 90% in 1991 and some, something like that. Anyway, um, we had a, we had a wonderful client, um, that was a big part of our business and, uh, they gave us a big vote of confidence in 1995, 96. But as part of that, um, they figured out that we were still, um, generating alpha, it was sort of uh, close to zero, but it was slightly positive. 
despite getting our heads handed to us. And they said, why don't we structure something where uh, you basically are long the market and uh, and short your stocks and we'll compensate you that way. And that's how they ran the uh, portfolio. We selected the shorts for them. And then we ended up doing our, ourselves directly. Um, so we have really two businesses, Mike. We have we have the short only business, U.S. and global, and that's for people that already have the longs. I mean, pension funds, family offices that have lots of embedded long exposure, and often they'll just contribute existing longs as collateral for that account, and then we'll just keep score on a, on a relative basis. Mm-hmm. And then for the people who don't want to do that, I mean, we actually could do the hedge for them. Um, generally, uh, it's passive. We're just trying to take the systematic risk out of the portfolio and isolate the idiosyncratic risk because that's how you make your money. Um, and so we figured that out. And whereas most hedge funds sort of go at it from the other end of the telescope, they buy stocks and then they they use indices to hedge. Um, we always thought there was a higher alpha generating possibility based on what we do on the short side. So we're willing to give up the alpha on the long side and, and just hedge the, the market risk out um, and try to isolate the short alpha. One of the ironies, of course, is by buying S&P futures, you, you have effectively bought into the greatest alpha creation vehicle on the planet for the past 25 years. <laughs> yes, I'm one of the I'm one of the villains in your story, I guess. That's okay. No, it's, it, it, I, I find it interesting, though, because in part, that same time period, 94, 95, was broadly when S&P futures began to be adopted by the long-only community on the index front as well, thanks to the 94 derivative uh, report from the, 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 SEC, the Harvey Pitt SEC, right? So mutual funds, index providers were actually cleared to begin using the S&P futures to replicate their position so they didn't have to buy every single stock when they came into the market. And, you know, regular viewers, and I know you have heard kind of my analysis that this is really what kicked off the dot-com cycle more than anything else because of the improper index construction at that time. But I do think that it was a it was a brilliant innovation, effectively saying, look, we can create alpha without having to constantly be short the market. And I, I, I want to emphasize that I've, I, I just completed an interview with a young portfolio manager who's in the process of building his business, Dan McMurtry at Tyro Partners, who you know is Super Magatu on, uh, on Twitter. Um, you know, Dan has come into the industry and it has taken advantage of some of these innovations to allow him to start the process of breaking in and building. I would put you in that same group where you you effectively said, "Look, this is not a sustainable business unless we make these adjustments." and I, I think there's no question that that innovation had a huge impact on the success of Kinecos and the success of yourself. And I just want to emphasize that for people that you need to, as you're thinking about this business, you need to separate genius in stock picking from genius in business formation or genius in, in underlying business approach. And I, I candidly will give you props for having a combination of the two. I, I, I thought you were even more innovative because you'd done it earlier, but you're, you're, you know, the observation that you also got that from your client to me speaks to the importance of that relationship that you had with a client that a client would say, Hey, why don't you do this? And I think that's the, you know, oh. that emphasizes some of the stuff I've said before. Now you mentioned talking about some of the projects that you're working on today. So you've sent me three presentations, and I, I want to talk about them almost in reverse order. So the first one 
that you introduced is, or the last one you introduced to me is a, a deck on IBM. <laughs> and you yeah. have some pretty strong views on IBM. And it's it's interesting because IBM to me is one of the classic, you know, nobody even, you know, it's, it's one of the largest companies in America. And honestly, I don't think anyone thinks about it other than the Watson commercials that show up on TV, but seem to have no meaningful impact on their business. Maybe you can... <laughs> Maybe you can lay out the thought process on what, what you're thinking about as IBM as a challenged company for today's environment. Yeah, I, I would note, by the way, that, that you used to see the Watson ads and it was all about like curing cancer and going to Mars and things like that. And and now they basically sponsor the betting shows on the NFL on Sunday morning. Yeah. So that maybe Watson can help you beat the spread. Um, anyway, um, so... IBM is fascinating. It, it, it's obviously a company that everybody knows. It has to be one of the least closely followed $150 billion market cap companies that, that we know of. Um, the analyst community dutifully writes about it after the earnings come out every quarter, and that's about it. Um, and everybody sort of knows it's there, but it's IBM, and it's kind of stodgy, and you know it pays a big dividend, and really nobody cares. Um, we were short IBM back in 2014, 2015, um, when Ginny Rometty was running the company. And if you recall, the company was increasingly doing sort of all kinds of wacky financial engineering to bolster their numbers, which were deteriorating under the surface because they had posted this aggressive $20 in earnings in the out year um, for, for a handful of years. And um, you know, they, they were struggling to do it as the core business was deteriorating. And we just suddenly realized that there was such a yawning gap between that $20 and what we thought was the real earnings, which was like sort of 10 bucks, nine bucks, that they had to reset. And sure enough, in, in uh, a year or so later, they had, the company had to come clean and reset and reset expectations down. And uh, the stock got killed. It went from 200 to 120 and we covered our short. And it was simply a quality of earnings story uh, on a business that was just kind of flatlining and slowly declining. Fast forward to a year ago. And when IBM decided to buy Red Hat for $34 billion in debt um, it, to, to jumpstart their cloud business, um, we decided to take another look. Stock was trading around 140, 150. And what we saw kind of shocked us as last year went on into this year. And what we saw was that the operating morass that we saw back in 2014, 2015, had gotten far worse. That now the revenue declines were sort of solidly mid-single digits year over year. They had cut costs as far as they could cut. And so the, the drops in revenues were now dropping to the operating income line. And even more so, the company was getting more and more aggressive with how it booked things like tax credits and one-time items to sort of make up the shortfall. And as we did the numbers, we realized, um, as we looked into 2020, 2021, and 2022, that the company, uh, which was supposed to make $11 this year, $12 next year, and $13 in 2022, and those $12 and $13 estimates are still still out there, um, really was going to make $6 this year in economic earnings, $5 and $4. 
<laughs> and we, we define economic earnings as basically their operating profit, as stated, minus the interest, plus royalty income, um, uh, taxed at 21%, the statutory tax rate. Yeah. And that there would be, maybe they could finesse turning the, uh, turning the $11 into, uh, from six this year, and they're doing it through a bunch of charges uh, that they're going to call extraordinary. But there was no way that they're going to be able to turn uh, $5 into 11 next year and, uh, uh, excuse me, into 12 next year and, uh, and uh, uh, $4 into 13 in 2022. And that, to us, said that we've got another reset coming, uh, that, that they're going to have to basically figure out a way to bridge the, the reality of, op, of IBM to this inflated uh, set of EPS numbers upon which they're paying a $6 dividend. Um, well, sure enough, about a month or so ago, they announced a, another restructuring and they're going to spin off part of their business uh, and keep part of the other business. And they're going to take a bunch of charges. And this is going to take uh, this is going to take 16 months to do. I have no idea why it's going to take 16 months to do, but <laughs> I think it's going to enable them to take a lot more charges next year. Um, and so that's how they're going to do it for this year and next year. They're going to basically say, well, we're taking all these transitional earnings charges and we're going to reinvest them in the business. Well, those aren't charges, right? Those are operating costs that you're just trying to reclassify. Um, but the problem still is 2022. How do you turn the $13 expectation from what we think is going to be $4? Um, and this is IBM. This is the problem. It's, it's now a very rapidly melting ice cube. And um, I think that the stock should be trading about half of where it's trading uh, today. Um, clearly, the dividend is holding it up. But at some point, the board is not going to be able to ignore reality and realize that they're paying out more than 100% of their real earnings in dividends. So the company's not reducing debt. It has $50 billion in debt. Um, and the business is shrinking. And I like to joke that they, they call themselves a cloud company, but they're actually, um, the cloud is their nemesis, not their business. Um, you know, the cloud is killing them. And uh, because their business is basically a bunch of old legacy things like the, uh, you know, the, the Miami Motor Vehicle Department or the Florida Motor Vehicle Department where they run systems or things like this. And, and inevitably that stuff is all going to the cloud. It's going to different, but IBM is not the vendor. Um, it's it's other companies. So that's actually one of the things that I would would highlight that I think is so interesting about an IBM. Um, I was talking with John Burbank uh, last week, and and he highlighted coronavirus as the single greatest technology adoption uh, migration that's ever happened, right? Or impetus to to rapid technology migration. If you're a corporation and you were ever thinking about when do I make changes, when do I restructure my operations, when do I switch these things out? this is it, right? I mean, things can't be done on mainframes that can be done in the modern cloud systems, et cetera. There's a lot of resistance to pulling that out, but much of that seems to have evaporated. And it it, it strikes me that that ice cube could start to melt very, very quickly. Yeah, I, I think, well, and, and look, for the fourth quarter coming up, revenue is going to be down 5% year over year. And it's just, I mean, it's happening. And it's happening in slow motion, but it's happening. And it's amazing. The analysts that follow this thing just dutifully write down the company's, you know, projections and guidance. Um, and and when we point out, like, well, can you compare the operating income to the bottom line? How is it that in some quarters, net income 
is higher than operating income if uh, there's interest expense and taxes. And, and, and IBM hasn't paid much in taxes over the last 10 years, by the way. And so at some point, you know, you have to realize, is this company, you know, even really all that profitable? Um, and so it's, it's, it's sitting there hiding in plain sight. You saw our deck. Um, we compare the operating earnings to, to uh, the economic earnings to the stated earnings. And the gap is just getting wider and wider and wider. And, and as we've said, sometime next year or in 2022, we're going to see a reset here. And they're going to have to tell you we're not really earning this. We're really only earning four or five dollars a share, um, not uh, not eleven or twelve or thirteen. Well, and, and and this is another area where your analysis overlaps with mine. As I look through the holders list on IBM, I need to get to number forty nine on the list of holders holding slightly less than a, than zero point three five percent of the company before I can actually find a human being who might have looked at something. <laughs> Right. Um, I think that's probably right. Every, everything else is index. Yeah. It's just and yet, incredible. And yet that has not that has not helped the company for all, all that has happened and all the buybacks they did under Ginny. Um, that has not helped. This the company has massively underperformed. And I think it will continue to massively. There's nothing worse than a tech company with shrinking revenues. Yeah. Um, and, and, and just the leverage, the operating leverage is just as extreme. And uh, this is uh, this is a company that, that markets more than than has real technology. Um, and and all you need to do is spend spend an hour with the financials. And this is this one's not rocket science. You'll see it right away. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, it, so I, I, I tend to agree with that. It immediately reminds me of a Kodak or others that you know have had a similar long-standing legacy. People look at it and say, ah, yes, but the intellectual property you know that they've accumulated over the years has to have incredible value, and you know, uh, it, it 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 is very hard to see how. Uh, I I can't disagree with you on this at all. And again. Well, and it's a really nice overlap with my stuff where I just don't think there's another human being that's looking at it. I, I just well, think it's yeah, really absurd. The other problem the value guys do is they, they take a look and they'll say, well, wait a minute. Um, the, if you look at the free cash flow, if you look at the operating cash flow minus the CapEx, you know, they're covering their dividend. Um, they, they, they're making enough to pay off. And, and I point out, well, wait a minute. If the revenues are still shrinking and they did a $35 billion acquisition uh, last year, and they did a couple of big ones a few years back. Um, I think your acquisitions are your R and D, uh, and and so you basically have to deduct them from your cash flow um, if revenues aren't growing. Right? If the company's still shrinking and you're doing all these deals, then then you are buying part of your growth in effect, or your your revenues would be shrinking even more. And so at the end of the day, there is no free cash flow here. And then the company obviously has gotten more and more levered up. So that gives us a great segue into into the next idea that um, that I wanted to chat about, which is uh, you you used a phrase "tam sanity," right? Uh, which refers to the total addressable market. And yeah. 
you know, this is another area where we are seeing very clear emphasis on growth in an environment, and, and it has created its own narrative that the reason large cap growth stocks are going up is because investors are desperate to find some element of growth in the market. And as a result, of course, investor communications at large companies have become about identifying the nearly unlimited growth opportunities that exist, right? Um, forget the fact, for, a, for, for example, that Apple really hasn't grown revenues at all, but you know, the, the total addressable market, TAM, yeah. mantra has become extraordinary. And maybe you could share some, some, some thoughts on how that's used, how, how you think about it. I, um, we'll make sure to include uh, in the materials, you have a graph that shows the frequency of the use of the phrase uh, 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 TAM in corporate filings, right? <laughs> that is just it, it, the only thing more vertical is the market itself. But yeah, so so I mean, obviously, this is as the market has gone on and on, and people have tried to find more unique ways to justify ever ever stretched valuations. You know, you get away from earnings and and uh, and cash flow pretty quickly, um, and and then not even price to revenues, you know, might satisfy some of the people. So. So then it's, it's, it's what is your total addressable market, right? What is the, the, the whole size of a market? And I, I think, uh, I think we, we referred to Uber's S1, where they, they said that the, the transportation market was their TAM, $13 trillion or something like that. And, and um, I actually got into trouble at, at Jim Grant's conference where I did this, uh, I did this talk. And I joked at the end of the talk that, that we were going to think about going long the space, uh, the space specs, uh, like Virgin Galactic. We are not long Virgin Galactic. We were not, <laughs> we're never long Virgin Galactic. Because I joke that, of course, um, the TAM in space is infinite, and therefore, you know, your TAM is infinite. Your 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 possibility of valuation expands uh, expands to infinity, and and so why would we tether valuations to anything if you're a space company, and. Um, and and I think Virgin Galactic went up like ten percent immediately on on uh, when some reporter on, on news that Jim Chano says long Virgin Galactic yeah, long know, space yeah was. you know and 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 uh, they missed the tongue firmly in cheek and and so yeah that, I mean that that the irony of all this market is that that uh, uh, I was ridiculing it and and uh, it drove the stock and and people were just ripping me online for you know how. You know, because the stock, of course, collapsed after we clarified that, and and uh, and uh, people were like, well, "Why would you joke about something like that?" Like, I'm sorry, you're an idiot. Um, you know, it's. But uh, anyway, so uh, what we try to do in trying to to separate the wheat from the chaff in this kind of nuttiness is to basically again go back to to fundamentals and and look at the nexus of the economic transaction, and 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 and. We totally understand that in the digital age, there are network effect um, and network effect companies that take advantage of a network effect. Um, so obviously things like Google and Facebook and, and, and like that, that, that the more users that use it, the more revenues that come in, the more costs are spread out over a higher user base. And you know the drill. Mm -hmm. um, but, but you have to separate that from the charlatans who will, who will basically then convince you that a taxi ride or house flipping, which by their very nature have well-established economics, 
Um, and and uh, house flipping after costs and renovations and brokerage commissions is almost always a money loser, even in a red hot housing market, enables you to do huge revenues that are inherently unprofitable. Food delivery is, and food delivery has been around for a long, long time. You know, taxis, ride hailing has been around for a long, long time. They're, sub, they're body shops. They're subject to labor constraints because a driver can only make so many drop-offs. We don't have autonomous vehicles yet. We don't have, you know, drones delivering you hamburgers yet. And so if you're hiring drivers and paying them less than minimum wage to drop off food or take you somewhere, you can, you can figure out what those unit economics are. And they're generally pretty bad um, or, or razor thin. And so being big in that area doesn't necessarily give you scale. Um, it might, might enable you to hire more drivers. But at the end of the day, if your labor pool is being paid below, below the market, you've got a problem because it's going to be harder and harder to find more and more drivers. And same with food delivery. If you can only deliver one meal every 25 minutes, which is what it works out to, you can kind of figure out what your revenues are capped at per driver. And you can do the math and realize it's not really a profitable business. Same thing with house flipping. Um, and, and, and we can go on and on and on. But these are places that enable you to grow really fast because, in effect, you are pricing your product below the market. I could, I could have an enormous TAM handing out $20 bills for $15 on the street corner. Um, I will grow incredibly fast, but the nexus of the transaction is, is negative. And so you have to kind of figure out who's selling you a bill of goods on these TAM stories just to to float shares or, 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 or pump a stock and where there really is a network effect. And, and, and therefore you can, will have gross margins that are defensible and, and, and will grow and have low capital needs. Um, and, and so there is a difference. I, I, I don't get the, the valuations that people are paying for software as a service stocks, but, but I understand that if you have good product, the, the heavy upfront costs on software as a service um, can actually pay off quite dramatically and returns on marginal capital can be great. But that isn't happening in food delivery, right? I mean, you just need you need more and more bodies to, to generate what you're doing. And the margins in the restaurant business are tiny to non-existent. And everybody's, when you deliver from a restaurant, basically it's not the restaurant and the consumer anymore. It's two other hands out. It's the driver and the platform company. And it's just not enough money in that transaction to make everybody profitable, and and so this is the inherent uh, this is the inherent insanity of the TAM type stories because we've gone from network effect to negative transaction uh, economics. Well, and, and and so taking that example, um, you know, part of what I would argue has occurred is it's not a network effect, right? When I am a when I own a restaurant and I sign up for a delivery service. You know, they are one subsidizing to attract my business and be able to show that they're growing their content in the same way that a Facebook or a, um, a Twitter, for example, is in many ways trying to attract people onto their platform to create those network effects. Right. So I'm in effect paying the restaurant. The restaurant responds to it by saying this is fantastic. I've now got somebody who's willing to deliver my food for free in order to you know build their business and create the value for the quote unquote value for their investors and shareholders so of course i'm going to sign up 
the employee is signing up, you know, the delivery driver is signing up for a very similar reason. It allows them to have a job that pays them something close to minimum wage or slightly better with much greater flexibility around their business model and allows them to utilize a resource, at least in the initial stages of the gig economy, that was something they already had, right? In the 2008-2009 environment, you had high unemployment and lots of people who had cars, and so they were able to to leverage this. But the irony today is, is that if we look at who's driving Uber or we look at who's delivering these, we really have just recreated the taxi services, right? It's people who are leasing vehicles, paying the insurance, et cetera, the old rates for New York City taxis were 120 bucks for a 12-hour shift, and now you have people who are leasing vehicles at $500 a week for access to, you know, the uh, the vehicle that they can use for Uber, right? I mean, they're they're functionally identical, and we've just, you know, stripped out in the case of of the 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 um, rideshare component, we've stripped out the the million dollar taxi medallion, right? And we've seen those values collapse as a result, but. Right. You know, it's. I, I completely agree with you. I don't think that there is any significant critical thinking that's going behind this. But again, it's one of these. It's the unique confluence of Silicon Valley and um, a need to deploy capital. Right? It can well, take a lot of capital. It can theoretically create a large total addressable market that could be profitable when the robot delivery is actually there, when it becomes a truly leverageable dynamic, which it just isn't today, yeah. right? It, it could be at some point in the future, but it certainly isn't today. There is an added little twist for the ride sharing, however, in food delivery companies. And you're in California, so you probably saw all the ads for Prop 22. And yeah. we, we make these guys employees or independent contractors. But the part of the story that they didn't tell you, neither the, the gig economy companies or the drivers, and a driver here in Miami tipped me off on this uh, last year because um, I was asking him, but we got to talking about the economics. And, and, and I said, well, then, of course, you've got, you know, you've got you've got your, your self-employment taxes and you have to pay 15.3 percent uh, all of the Medicare and Social Security you're responsible for. And he laughed and, and, and he said, I don't pay any taxes. And I said, well, look, I don't want to get in. You know, I don't want to I don't want to cast dispersions. But, you know, obviously you are on the hook for that. He said, look, I, I, I don't, I don't, no one gets reported anything. I said, well, of course you get reported. You get a 1099. Um, the IRS gets a 1099. He said, no, my friend, we don't get 1099s. And I said, what are you talking about? And he proceeded to tell me, and he was right, about a loophole in the federal reporting system that the ride sharing and food delivery companies have been categorized by the IRS as uh, payment platform companies. And unless the payments from the payment platform companies aggregate over $20,000 a year, there's no reporting. So <laughs> it's why a lot of drivers work for more than one of the companies. Of course, makes if perfect they, sense. They, if they earn less than $20,000 from say Uber and Lyft and DoorDash each, or $60,000 total, nobody knows what they're making. It's not reported to the federal government. That's fantastic. And, and and when you ask Uber or Lyft about this, they'll say, "Well, the, the you know what the drivers do is uh, is up to their uh, themselves." I actually tweeted about this a few days ago. You can actually go to the Uber website and they explain what 1099k uh, responsibility is, and they basically say, "If if we pay you less than twenty thousand dollars a year, 
we don't report it. Um, it's a huge loophole. And the states don't get this information. The federal government doesn't get this information. And so a lot of these drivers aren't paying taxes. And, and I just, you know, it's again, nobody wants to talk about it because it's a loophole that the IRS could close, you know, pretty quickly. Um, it's huge. It's, it's works out to three to four dollars an hour. That's yep. absolutely incredible. Um, yep. Let's go on to uh, one more that both you and I are following fairly closely here, which is the commercial real estate environment. And this fits into obviously a COVID related dynamic where we have seen an extraordinary decline in the demand for office space. Um, and likewise, many physical retail establishments, as that technology push has shifted people towards eating at home, uh, you know, working from home, uh, taking delivery of food, et cetera, as compared to what would have happened as recently as nine months ago. Is this simply a COVID trade or is, is COVID the catalyst here? What is, what, tell us about what you're thinking. You referenced uh, earlier that uh, the COVID technology uh, uh, acceleration. And we started looking at this a while ago, pre-COVID. Um, if you take a look at the uh, publicly traded real estate companies, um, most of them saw peaks in net operating income, which is the core sort of metric we use, which is building cash flow. Um, sort of basically EBITDA for corporate overhead. Most of the uh, office and mixed use and retail REITs peaked in 2018. Um, certainly retail may have peaked even earlier, 2016, 2017. You know, the basic problem is we have a lot of space in this country, and we've been building a lot of it since the GFC. And with lower and lower cap rates, which is really the core of our story, um, basically people went on to, 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 to keep developing. As we went into COVID, um, I sent you our presentation, office vacancy rates were already at, at levels that we've seen at previous cycle bottoms, um, that, that, that they were mid-teens in many markets. Um, I mentioned that NOIs were beginning to drop, and, and that's the case. And then COVID hit. And heretofore, sort of stable real estate businesses like hospitality fell off a cliff, um, and retail, uh, of course, got much, much worse. But in office, that's not the case yet. Because of the nature of office leases, the roll-off is much, much slower. Mm -hmm. uh, typically, the office, an office building has a duration of tenants of by eight or nine years. So um, you're seeing really uh, in offices, yes, some tenants aren't paying, but for the nation as a whole, 92%, 94% uh, are current on their, their, uh, their rents in offices and, uh, and occupancies are, are, you know, slightly north of 90%. Um, that is going to be a slow motion train wreck. I, I think work from home is only going to exacerbate um, the pressure that was already starting to happen. Uh, I'll give you a good example of what I mean. So SL Green is the well-known New York office and retail REIT. And if you look at their consolidated NOI, and I think they, I'm going to get these numbers right, in the third quarter of 2019, their quarterly NOI from their portfolio properties was $130 million. 
In the fourth quarter, it was $122 million. In the first quarter, which was still pre-pandemic because they got March rents before the lockdown, uh, it dropped to $115 million. In the second quarter of 2020, it dropped to 106. And for the quarter they just reported, it was 99. So, of course, we're looking at the 130 minus 90, uh, 99 versus 130 a year ago and saying, okay, their cash flows are down 25% or so uh, year over year. But think about this. Their cash flows dropped from 130 to 115 in the two quarters pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so this was in place. And, and there are other REITs that look exactly like this was in place before COVID hit. COVID's making it worse. That's number one. What really has us fascinated, and we were short the commercial real estate cycle in the late 80s. What really has us fascinated is the function of cap rates in commercial real estate. Because at their peaks in 2018, you were getting cap rates for offices of 4 and 5%, retail 5 and 6%. And while that sounds attractive when rates are, are 1%, you have to realize that's before CapEx. Typically 3% for a right. mall per year, 2% right. for an office building per year. Because public REITs capitalize leasing costs and tenant improvements. Yep. So a four percent, a four percent quote unquote cap rate deal meant you 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 were earning two percent in cash in an office building. And that give you that gave you no margin for error, right? You could lose by rates going up, you could lose by spreads, credit spreads going out, you could lose by tax rates going up. You can't move a building. It's and what we've noticed now is is with the drop in NOIs, something has happened that no one counted on volatility in the cash flow of the asset. Prior to this, it was just you, you raised your rents a couple percent a year. It was like clipping coupons. It's not like clipping coupons anymore. There's all kinds of new risks to the asset. Well, and, so, and to your to your point about the shrinking dynamic that was going on, right? So this is very clearly a combination of lower revenues per square foot, particularly in the retail side, right? So that had been delayed for an extended period of time due to the debt covenants that existed on many of the individual properties, there's been strong resistance. This is for someone who's been to New York City pre-COVID, you saw a remarkable rise in vacancy rates. This is largely tied to the fact that if you lowered your rents, you actually triggered covenants in your debt Correct. contracts on the specific Correct. property. And as a result, it was more profitable to sit vacant and actually pretend that you were going to receive those rents that appeared to break somewhere in 2019, and you started to see some of those dynamics begin to flow through in terms of the deteriorating components, right? Now, yep. the office space, yes, they're having trouble filling new office space or filling replacement office space because of the dynamics of the coronavirus and the pandemic. But as you point out, that doesn't show up for six to eight years. Right. So it's going to be a slow roll. It's going to be a slow roll. Yeah. And 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 but it's going to happen. And and then, you know, you hear things like the Raytheon CEO a week ago um, telling people, well, you know, no matter what happens with a vaccine, um, we need 25. We've already done the numbers for our company and we have offices and, and, and complexes all over the country. Our actual square footage needs for office is going to be down 25 percent. 
So there you have a very typical Fortune 500 company saying, whatever happens, if we needed a million square feet to do our job, we need 750,000 square feet going forward. And I think there are lots of companies that are looking at that and making that same decision um, as, as things go forward. And I think that that, that that is going to weigh on the NOIs of these projects. So let me give you a little, let me give the viewer an analog as a way to think about commercial real estate right now. So if I had a building in San Francisco or Midtown Manhattan or Chicago Loop, and it threw off $100 in NOI two years ago at the peak, offices, ground floor retail, that typical building today um, is got NOI of $75. Rents have come down, retails come down, operating costs have stayed flat. In 2018, I would have had to pay $2,000 for that, 5% cap rate on $100 NOI. And I could probably get a 50%, maybe 60% first mortgage, and maybe 10% more in mezzanine finance. So I'd be putting up anywhere from $600 to $800 in equity and be borrowing the rest to get me to $2,000. Mm -hmm. That $75 today is in uh, a environment of a 6% cap rate. And that cap rates have generally gone up about 100 basis points post-COVID. Although the rally this past Monday, Tuesday has brought that back down a little bit. Right. But, but say last week, we were looking at 6% cap rates in offices, 7% in retail. So that mixed use building now for purposes of either refinancing or a new buyer uh, if we multiply $75 times 16.7, I think we get about 1250 bucks. So you see the problem. Uh, so what was, was a 50 to 60% loan to value project is now 100% loan to value. Yeah. The equity has been wiped out or is yeah. down 80%. And, and we're now facing most likely another 20% plus drop in NOI from mid-2020 to mid-2021. So our NOI next year is going to be $60 on that building. And this is the inherent problem. It's, it's not so much cap rates. Those are bad enough. It's that the cash flows are now structurally beginning to drop for buildings. And it may turn around, but it may not. I would point out to you, Mike, I paid at 712 Fifth Avenue... Um, when I signed my, my first Midtown office lease in 1990, I paid, I think, the outrageous price per square foot of about $42 a square foot. There is sublease space now in Man Midtown Manhattan in Class A office space available at $30 a square foot. Wow. And you probably asking rents are still around 70 something. You can probably sign a new lease for probably 55 to 60. Um, and, and I paid, I paid 42 in 1990. So, so for those of you that think this is even a great inflation hedge, um, you might want to rethink that, uh, that was 30 years ago. Um, and so I think that, that commercial real estate as a safe asset class diversifier instead of bonds, I think that's really the crux of our story. That's going to get a completely, you know, new look in terms of from lenders and equity buyers. And I think that the rate of return needed to compensate for risk is going to have to go up 
from five and six percent. And and as cash flows are going down, and the impact on equity values is is stunning um, when you do when the when the movie runs in reverse and leverage, you know what happens. I think you know it goes back to one of the initial comments we made, right? It goes credit and debt have an interesting dynamic to them when it comes to equity investing, right? It's a lot of people are drawn to the short side because they say this company is overvalued, right? Well, overvaluation doesn't create a catalyst. A debt contract creates a catalyst. If you cannot refinance, if you cannot fulfill the obligations of your debt contract, then you are forced into a transaction similar to other stuff or forced into an action similar to other stuff we've talked about. You brought up the IBM dividend as providing support. I would highlight on an SL Green, for example, it is heavily, heavily owned by dividend yielding and real estate funds, et cetera. And so if they are forced to cut that dividend, you actually enter into an environment in which you could see forced liquidation from passive holders. I mean, this is one of those examples where Vanguard holds 18% of the company. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure you've shared your analysis with the Vanguard analysts that are covering this, right? It's, <laughs> Actually, I haven't, but that's okay. Maybe no, it's because I'm I'm going to try to make you feel better about their yeah. unwillingness to reach out to you. They don't have they it. They don't have right? one. I know. I know. <laughs> so, um, but this is you know this is one of those dynamics where when they are forced to accept this, when they are forced to change their dividend, when they are forced into a situation, they can get kicked out of an index and create forced selling with no ready buyer to this. So this is one of those that's gonna be very interesting to watch. My bias would say that this is gonna be similar to a wire card, that it suspends itself, suspends itself, suspends itself, you know, in kind of a magical format and then just cracks horrifically. The one difference, Mike, I would tell you, I was out with some investors, real estate investors last night here in Miami, and I was sort of walking them through the case and they were they were stunned that the public market REITs were still trading at the valuation numbers I told them. Because um, as I put in the deck, commercial real estate in the US is a monstrously large asset class. It's mm-hmm. $17 trillion. And, and the debt alone on that is probably about $10 trillion. And the debt in the troubled areas, you know, uh, offices, uh, retail, hospitality, um, Urban urban center multifamily uh, probably five to six trillion dollars. Now to put that in perspective, um, the losses in the commercial real estate bust of the late '80s, the SNL bust, um, totaled about eight hundred billion dollars, which almost sounds like a quaint amount in this day and age. Uh, <laughs> it was back then. Yeah, it was fifteen percent of GDP back then because our yep, GDP yep. was only about five and a half trillion bucks. Uh, subprime mortgage loans and Alt A and PICA rate loans totaled a little bit under two trillion in 2007. Now, not all of them went bad, as you know, but that two trillion number was also interestingly about 15 percent of GDP in 07. Um, uh, our GDP was 13 and a half trillion then. That five and six trillion dollar number of, of, of debt on troubled commercial real estate assets um, that's that's pushing. 30% of GDP right now. Um, this is a very big issue. It is not a systemic issue in that our largest banks generally do not have a lot of this stuff. It's much more diffuse in the regional banks and in, in insurance portfolios and hedge fund portfolios through CMBS. But there is a lot of this paper out there that's radioactive that, that 
is hopefully going to get re refinanced. Um, and so the equity markets can kind of ignore it for a while. But if buildings are now trading, I just saw refinance in, in Manhattan, in a, down in the financial district, that was done at $450 a square foot. And the previous transaction for the building was at $750 a square foot. This is going to be hard to ignore. Um, and then if you get some marquee bankruptcies, and there are a couple I can think of that are probably looming, um, it's going to catch people's attention. So if I, if I look at the debt, for example, on SL Green, uh, and I just pull it up quickly, most of it's trading at or above par. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you think that the debt gets impaired, or do you think this is an equity story? Well, the REITs, the, the office REITs are blessed by actually reasonable leverage, right? That that the, the fulcrum is the equity. Okay. Um, because, they're yeah, they're only about 50% levered. Now, when we take a look at the off-balance sheet stuff, there's more. Um, but, but just to give them as a, as a, as a cynic, just looking at the consolidated stuff, most of the office REITs have leverage levels that are, are okay. Um, what they're not going to be able to do is keep paying the dividend, as you point out, and, 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 or show any earnings or fund FFO for the equity investors. Um, where people are more levered, of course, are in the private markets mm -hmm. and, and in certain selected REITs. You know, uh, we're looking at SL Green and v Bornado or, and, and Brookfield Properties um, because they're big. But there are a number of REITs in a, uh, specialized sectors that are quite levered. And those are the ones that are sort of of interest to us. And um, one we're looking at has 45% of their tenants are movie theaters. Um, <laughs> <laughs> problems. <laughs> yeah, that, that, so, that might create challenges. Yeah. And, 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 and there's one we're looking at in, in, in Europe where uh, they're collecting almost none of their rents because they're they're a, a landlord to small restaurants and cafes uh, in a city center. And so you can find the you can find I mean the good thing is this is a big asset class and you can find public securities that just seem are kind of wacky. So let's start to wrap up on that because I, I you know I, you've been very generous with your time here, but I want to get your kind of thoughts on what happens when, this cycle breaks when the golden age of fraud begins to fall apart, right? And you and I have been doing this long enough to know that that will inevitably happen. It's going to be different every time it does, yeah. right? So we, we can't get to pick the way the ending plays out. But what, what are your thoughts on what happens next? And, and I, I'm just going to caveat that with a couple of key concerns that I have, which is the industry, this has gone on so long now that I don't know who the next Jim Chanos is. I don't know who comes in to fill your shoes, very sizable ones, you know, when we come out the other side of this. And I, it feels to me like we've lost so much in terms of research capability, thoughtfulness in the market, et cetera, that I, I don't entirely know how we recover from it, but I, I'd, I'd be interested in your reaction to that. What what happens on the other side of this? Well, for the next cycle, I hope uh, I hope the next one is Jim Chanos. Uh, because yeah. I'm still I'm still doing this um, as I love it, but um, I I don't know. I mean, as you said, every every cycle is different, right? And 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 what comes along that 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 changes people's perception is different each time. I keep pointing out to um, people that in and you remember this in march of 2000 there was no catalyst the market just stopped going up and started going down and then of course everybody started looking in the rearview mirror 
And the one thing I can guarantee you will hear, because we always do, is, well, it was so obvious. Why didn't, you know, I mean, look at what was going on, right? The dot-com, you know, Ask Dr. Coop and Pets.com and, and uh, all this crazy stuff. Of course people were going to get killed. Well, that's not what it felt like while it was going on. You know that and I know that. Mm-hmm. And it's not what it feels like right now while it's going on. And and uh, that that prices can just go up forever and, and valuations can can go up forever. And we'll we'll only look back at hindsight and say, you know, what were people smoking, right? What were they thinking? Um, and but what gets us to that? What the bridge to get us to? I have no idea. I mean, obvious culprits. The central banks get it wrong, right? And or get it right and actually begin, you know, fostering inflation and rates start going up. I mean, I don't think the average investor just realizes to what an extent the financialization of the economy that you've basically referenced has come on the back of, you know, rates going from 14% to 0% in my career. I mean, that hides a lot of problems. And I, I think that, that, uh, that that's something that, that we have to, you know, we have to look at. But it could be political. I mean, it could just be, it, it could be the, the idea that, that um, the, the central banks using asset inflation or asset price stabilization as a policy uh, part of the tripod is just fostering more and more outrage in, in areas of our economy. Um, and, and, you know, it could be something like that. It could, I mean, who knows? Um, but what we do know is that valuations are set up to basically uh, no margin of error and, and that the losses will be severe in some areas where the silliness is the worst. Yeah, it's one of the things that I struggle with in, in communicating a lot of uh, thinking that I have. Um, you know, what I try to emphasize for people is, is that what they think of as value, SL Green would qualify. IBM with a 6% dividend yield would qualify. I think one of the, the biggest challenges this time around is, is that the quality of value has deteriorated so dramatically. There's yes. so much leverage. There's so much room for it to fall in terms of the actual claims on the corporate structure that it it makes me quite concerned that you know we are as an industry going to come out looking quite bad um and the other thing that that really concerns me is this the younger generation of analysts i know that you have um a a number of analysts at kinecos uh and i have you know worked with several analysts over the years but there's just not that many young people coming into the industry that are being given the opportunity to develop the forensic skills that you and your team have that will give us the confidence to say the coast is clear coming out of this. I, I could be totally wrong on that, but I'm I'm quite concerned that we, in an attempt to preserve the old guard, and you and I are both part of that, we've done a terrible job of, of training the next generation of analysts. It certainly for the most part hasn't paid off, right? So, uh, yeah. so- you know, people go where the money is. And, and I think that that, you know, that is that is, I think, an area that is going to be found wanting. I agree with you. Um, it hasn't mattered now. Um, and uh, I'm hopefully at some point it will matter. Um, but events may swamp all of us. I'm hopeful that people watching are starting to understand that um, they can begin to learn the right things to do, the approaches that you've taken or that you know I've taken on occasion in my career, 
and understand that just because that's not being immediately rewarded, that doesn't mean that it's the wrong thing to do. I hope that that we're able to develop those skills. Um, but I, I'm I'm concerned, and that's part of the reason I enjoy doing these conversations. Jim, this was absolutely fantastic. Um, you have made yourself very accessible to me over your career. Um, you're incredibly busy. I, I fully understand that. But if individuals wanted to follow you or get more information around the types of uh, discussions that we're having here, you're quite active on Twitter. Uh, you're under your hashtag is Wall Street Cynic. Is that correct? Uh, and under, rumor has it. Rumor has it. Rumor. Rumor. Okay. Rumor has it that it is at Wall Street Cynic. Um, and is there anywhere else that people can turn if they wanted to gain access to some of your materials yeah. or insights? I, I mean, not really. We're we're still a private money manager, so so sadly, you know that that we're we're in that little world. Um, and and so, uh, but but you know, I get I get out of my room every once in a while. Well, so. I would I would like to take advantage of that. This is you know, as always, this is absolutely incredible sitting down with the opportunity to talk to you. If I can add you to my stable of regular appearances on on uh, Real Vision, I would really, really enjoy that. Maybe we can connect in another six to 12 months Love and this. share with our viewers how this has worked. Just how wrong we've been, right? Yeah. Just how wrong <laughs> we both have been. Exactly correct. That's always the right way to think about it. Jim, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you spending the time with us and our viewers. It was my pleasure, Mike. Have a great Thanksgiving holiday wherever you are and with whomever you're having it in this era. Um, but I enjoyed it and we'll do it again next year. I look forward to it. The same to you and to your family. Take care. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.